I'm Dr. Orion Taraban, and this is PsychHacks, Better Living Through Psychology. And the topic of today's short talk is the way it all ends. So this is a long one, but it's an important one. It's also one for the ladies. So guys, forward this on to your sisters and daughters. They need to hear this. All right, let's start by taking a high-level look at the state of the sexual marketplace in the present day, shall we? Fewer people are getting married, entering into relationships, or even hooking up than ever before. All three of these things are at historically unprecedented lows, and there are many, many reasons for this. However, one of the primary drivers of this phenomenon, as discussed in a previous episode, is female hypergamy, coupled with the reality that in the West, young women are doing very well. Childless women under 30 are outperforming men in that demographic in almost every quantifiable metric, and most notably, in education and earning. Yay, women! That said, if women retain their tendency to mate and date up, and if young men are underperforming relative to young women, then there will simply be a smaller and smaller pool from which most women would be willing to select a partner. And since women are the gatekeepers of sex and men are the gatekeepers of commitment, and since sex precedes commitment in the West, we see the trickle-down effect mentioned before. Less sex leads to fewer relationships, leads to fewer marriages. Now, this would actually be a much easier problem to solve were it not for one little thing. Namely, women, despite all their modern ideas about gender, sex, and power, are still waiting for the offer. As discussed previously, across all cultures and throughout history, the man has been expected to proposition the woman. This proposition can range from you up to can I buy you a drink sometime to will you marry me? But it is always the man who makes the offer to the woman. And this is peculiar because there doesn't seem to be like a necessary reason for this. Like if we can collectively question the necessity of pretty much every other traditional gender role, I'm not sure why this one has survived to the present day. And just for the record, I would love to be taken out to dinner. Like, if you want to make all the plans and pay for everything, or if you want to invite me over for a home-cooked meal, I would be thrilled to show up and look pretty. Provided, of course, you are sufficiently attractive, you meet all of my criteria, and you don't assume I'm just going to sleep with you, because that would be creepy and my eyes are up here. In any case, and for <laughs> whatever reason... Women don't seem interested in occupying this traditionally male role in the courtship process. At all ages and at all levels of commitment, they are still waiting for the offer. Now, on the surface, this doesn't seem to cause too many problems for women in their 20s. The offers might be coming in hard and fast, and it may reasonably seem like it's only a matter of time before an even better offer comes in, and they'll accept when they're ready. However, this attitude, while understandable, leads to a number of fairly predictable downstream consequences. This is because the game changes at 30. As previously discussed, 30 is the age at which the average male's sexual marketplace value exceeds the average woman's sexual marketplace value for the very first time. 
And since men are presumably expected to make the same ultimate offer, namely marriage or a lifetime of commitment, protection, and provision, to a woman in her 20s as to a woman in her 30s or beyond, and since women's sexual marketplace value decreases across the same timeline, all other things being equal, the same offer becomes increasingly expensive as the woman ages. I'll say that again in a slightly different way. Since the offer is the same, but a woman's sexual marketplace value decreases as she ages, the same offer becomes increasingly expensive as a function of time. What this generally means is that if women don't adapt to changing conditions, they may find themselves priced out of the market, especially since they seem hell-bent against making the offer. This is why Mick Jagger crooned that time was on his side. Yes, it is. Now, before I go any further, if you're liking what you're hearing, please consider sending this episode to someone who might benefit from its message, because it's word-of-mouth referrals like this that really help to make the channel grow. You can also hit the super thanks button, it's the three little dots in the lower right-hand corner, and tip me in proportion to the value you feel you've derived from this message. All of this is made possible through your support, and I couldn't do this without you, so I'm really appreciative of what you can do. Thank you very much. All right, let's try to put this all together, shall we? Given all the factors that we've discussed thus far, female hypergamy, young women's success relative to young men, changing SMV as a function of time, and the fact that women aren't making offers to men, there are actually only a few different ways this can possibly turn out. In fact, if we play the chess out 20 moves, we see that there are only five possible endgames here for women. I can't give the exact odd ratios, but some are much more plausible than others. Let's briefly walk through all five scenarios. Remember, high-performing, attractive young women set an extremely high barrier to entry. Their success, coupled with their hypergamy, means that there are fewer potential mating and dating options for them. Their price tags, the value required to overcome their entry barriers to a sexual relationship, are very, very high. And since the majority of women are gunning for the same top 10% of men, the intrasexual competition is astounding. Now, on the other hand, while women are doing very well, the men to whom they are hypergamously attracted are, by definition, doing even better. These 10% of men have incredible optionality, and they may understandably be reticent to forego the buffet for the same meal for the rest of their lives. This creates the ironic paradox that the men who have what women want are the least likely to give it to them. Let me say that again. The men who have what women want are the least likely to give it to them. From their perspective, the women's demands are too expensive, and they only become more expensive as a function of time. And this phenomenon will intensify as the trends we've discussed continue. What this means is that given the assumptions I've already mentioned, there are only five endgames for women. As you'll see, they logically cover all possible outcomes. Here they are. A, women keep their price tags high, beat out the intrasexual competition, and secure the high-value man. B, women lower their price tags in order to beat out the intrasexual competition and secure the high-value man. C, 
women keep their price tags high, fail to beat out the intersexual competition, and settle for a lower value man. D, women lower their price tags, still fail to beat out the intersexual competition, and settle for a low value man. And E, women neither secure nor settle and end up unpartnered. There are literally no other ways for the game to end. So which outcome is most likely? Feel free to pause the episode and take a guess. Now, since we're talking about behavioral economics and the exchange of value, the easiest way to approach an answer to this question is to consider what you, a woman, would do if you were shopping. To that end, would you ever, ever buy the exact same product from one vendor if you could get it more cheaply and easily somewhere else? Of course not. And that's why, though this is going to be hard for some women to appreciate, the most unlikely outcome by far is scenario A. Keeping your price tag high with men who are awash in optionality ain't going to lead to a sale. That said, do you sometimes pay much more for a product from one vendor, even though you could get a similar product more cheaply and easily elsewhere? You do. Almost every woman I know owns a designer bag, which is a sack to hold things. You don't need to spend thousands of dollars on a sack, but you do need to spend thousands of dollars on a Versace sack. Now, Versace can charge thousands of dollars for a sack because they have demonstrated proof that women will pay thousands of dollars. They can beat out all the other sacks. They are the 1% of sacks. And a woman needs to be a 1% woman to have a Versace price tag. By definition, most women are not 1% women. They will lose to the intrasexual competition for the top 10% of men if they keep their price tags high. This is not because these men can't afford the price tag, but because, like you, they are not going to spend more than they need to for the exact same product. So scenario A is the least likely. It only happens about 1% of the time. 